I'm Leslie Benjamori. I uh, direct the Center on Conflict Rights and Justice here at SOAS in the Politics Department. It is a great honor to have two distinguished professors here this evening from the United States. We have Scott Sagan from Stanford University and Ben Valentino from Dartmouth. Um, Scott Sagan is the Caroline S. G. Monroe Professor of Political Science at Stanford where he is also a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Scott's work is very well known to everybody across the world on nuclear strategy and nuclear policy, um, nuclear insecurity. He's been writing about this for many decades and has been one of the most influential thinkers on this area. Um, so it's wonderful to have you here at SOAS tonight, Scott. Scott's here to speak about the nuclear necessity principle and the risk of nuclear war. Ben Valentino has made an extraordinary contribution uh, on many domains, on mass atrocities, mass atrocities prevention. And now Ben and Scott have done a lot of really fantastic, um, somewhat disturbing work on public opinion with respect to the use of nuclear weapons. It's wonderful to have you here together to speak to us at SOAS Radio. And I wanted to start perhaps with you, Ben, if you could tell us, you know, a, a lot of us thought that we were living in a fairly secure world when it came to the risk of a nuclear war or using nuclear weapons. And the work that you've published recently, the two of you together, as I understand it, suggests that even if that's true, that actually many people, certainly many Americans, would support the use of nuclear weapons once again in certain circumstances. So could you tell us a little bit about the origins of your work and and is, is it really true? Well, thanks for, uh, for having us here. Yeah, I would say the, the origins of this uh, project go uh, far back. Um, as you know, I was a, a student of Scott's uh, when I was an undergraduate at Stanford University. And um, that was uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, and uh, that's where I uh, originally became interested in, in nuclear weapons. And one of the issues even, even then uh, that we discussed was whether uh, a taboo had emerged around the use of these weapons that dis was the reason why they had not been used again in war since uh, 1945, which in some ways was really quite uh, shocking. And that, uh, that argument uh, that a nuclear taboo exists had only grown stronger over the years as the uh, tradition of non-use went on longer and longer. Um, but I think both Scott and I were always a little puzzled uh, by the, the taboo argument, in part because it's a strange taboo um, in which one stockpiles the, the weapons that it's taboo to, to use. It's a, a little like uh, stockpiling uh, sauce to eat some taboo food. Uh, why would you do that if you had no interest in ever eating it? So it seemed like an odd kind of taboo. And uh, for a long time, though, neither Scott nor I had real strong ideas about how to test these arguments. But beginning in um, the mid-2000s, uh, this new methodology began to become available where we could deliver public opinion surveys over the internet to representative samples of, uh, of the population. And in some conversations over the years, we started to think about how that might give us an opportunity to see whether, in fact, at least the American public uh, saw a, a taboo to the use of nuclear weapons. So then we began a series of, uh, of experiments, uh, which has been our work uh, over the last few years, um, uh, to explore these and other related issues about the use of nuclear weapons and, and other uses of force. So, so tell us, how did you decide where to look? I mean, there are many places where one could think about 
nuclear weapons uh, coming under consideration as a response. But where did you look first and, and how did you decide, make that decision? Our, our first work dealt with Al-Qaeda as a potential target and that we put together a an experiment that had Al-Qaeda stealing the material for a nuclear weapon and building it uh, in a remote desert location. At the time we did this experiment, we had it as Syria because the Syria civil war had not broken out and it was actually a country that Americans did not know very much about. It would be very hard to replicate that. We'd have to do it in a different country. And the scenario was set up so that Al-Qaeda um, had a, was developing a nuclear weapon. The respondents were told that we could either attack it with a conventional weapon or with a nuclear weapon. And then in the different experimental conditions, we varied the effectiveness so that nuclear weapons could be equally effective as a conventional weapon. That is, we don't need to use a nuclear weapon. Or we could make nuclear weapons twice as effective or even more. And what we found, and this was the surprising thing, is that, not surprisingly, most Americans said, if you don't need to use a nuclear weapon, don't use it. But 20% of the public said, use the nuclear weapon even in the condition in which it had no extra effectiveness than a conventional weapon. If you increase the effectiveness to be double a conventional weapon, then actually the vast majority of the public supported using nuclear weapons. So that suggested for at least a 20% group, or 18.9%, there was not atomic aversion, there was atomic attraction. They found something attractive about using nuclear weapons, and that for the rest, or for the majority, what really mattered was the effectiveness, not so much whether there was a taboo or not. But there was one weakness or one limit to this initial study, which was published in the American Political Science Review, is that in order to test nuclear weapons as nuclear weapons and not to conflate the question of how many people were killed with nuclear weapons with a nuclear taboo by itself, there's something about the weapons itself, we kept the casualty numbers low. We said only a 1,000 innocent people would be killed in either of these attacks, a remote location. So we decided to do a separate experiment in which Iran, rather than um, a remote location, but a Iranian city was the target. And Ben will explain that experiment and what we've done here. Now, Ben, before you, before you explain, let, let me ask you a question, um, either one of you. Um, you know, who are these 20% of people? Do, do you have a sense of who are the 20% that are willing to say nuclear no matter what, even if conventional work? Did, did you break down the data? Are these the... The people that we're hearing about now in the U.S. elections, the old, white, angry Americans? Or is this just a general demographic spread? No, that's pretty much right. They tended to be older uh, Republican voters or citizens um, who on uh, in many, many surveys and uh, many studies have been shown to be more hawkish on a, a variety of questions. And so um, conservative, Republican, older, generally white uh, lower education, those are the people um, who are most in favor of, of using the nuclear weapons. I would just add, however, that this is not a new phenomenon. In 1945, when um, the American public was polled right after the dropping of the atomic bomb, the va vast majority of Americans said the United States did the right thing. But 23% of the American public disagreed with Harry Truman's decision because they said, we should have continued to drop more atomic bombs and not give Japan a chance to surrender. 
We didn't have the same demographic information about that group, but we suspect that there is some continuity uh, here with the kinds of people who would uh, view retribution and using the weapon as the priority rather than its effectiveness. And was there any broader questioning of whether or not you could contain the impact of dropping a nuclear bomb, environmental spillovers, all the sorts of things that now really get discussed so much in in our public conversations about nuclear weapons. Was this a nuclear strike that where the effects are really just contained to the direct target? Let me talk about the next experiment because you'll get a sense that the direct target in the next experiment is deliberately killing people and lots of people. We don't test for environmental effects, although we could in future work. The next experiment noted that um, there's been a drop in public support for dropping the bomb from the 1945 period, where if asked just in a binary, was it a good or bad thing, 85% would support it, to 45 or just below 45% in the most recent polls. Many people have looked at that and said, oh, that's evidence of this nuclear taboo. Or someone like Steven Pinker has gone further and said this is evidence of the internalization of a norm of noncombatant immunity. It's a humanitarian impulse. It's the better angels of our nature coming out. But from that evidence, we can't tell, in terms of the lowering of the support for dropping the bomb, whether people have changed their views about Japan or changed their view about nuclear weapons. It's hard to know whether they all share the understanding of how many people died in Japan. And most importantly, they don't put themselves in the situation. Virtually none of those experiments, none of those surveys, ever ask somebody about a trade-off between killing American soldiers in, say, an invasion of Japan versus killing innocent people. So we said, let's try to experiment that faces those trade-offs. So we asked people to imagine and read a story in which Iran violates the Iran agreement. And the United States catches or claims that Iran has started a centrifuge enrichment facility. We put sanctions back on, and in response, there's an attack against an American ship in the Persian Gulf, killing just over 2,000 people, the exact number of people who died at Pearl Harbor. Congress declares war. The president declares unconditional surrender as our goal. And after the initial fighting bogs down, the Joint Chiefs of Staff present the president with two options. You can either drop an atomic bomb on the second largest city in Iran, deliberately to kill a shock strategy to force the Iranian people to encourage the government to resign and accept unconditional surrender, or you can march to Tehran. And we said for experimental purposes that 20,000 Americans are estimated to die in the march to Tehran, but we'll win. Dropped the bomb, and we varied in the experiment how many people were killed from 100,000 to 2 million. And we found that 60% of the public was willing to support the dropping of the bomb when it came to protecting American troops. And in a separate experiment where it was 100,000 and a conventional attack to deliberately kill 100,000, it spiked even higher. There was a little bit of aversion to using nuclear weapons but not much aversion to killing innocent civilians. It's disturbing on the face of it, Ben. But is, it, is this about Americans? Are Americans uniquely willing to use this kind of weapon, which doesn't discriminate? 
Well, that's one of the the big questions that remains. Although I can say、um, that we replicated、uh, this experiment using a similar setup.、Uh, we replicated the original taboo experiment、um, in India, asking、um, citizens of India whether they would be willing to use nuclear weapons if they provided an advantage in striking a、um, a terrorist、uh, WMD lab that was、um, uh, uh, in Pakistan. And、um, again, we found widespread support in India、uh, for using nuclear weapons against this target in Pakistan, even though in India、um, they have、uh, a decades-old policy of、uh, a stated policy of no first use of nuclear weapons, and even though、um, uh, striking a target in Pakistan, obviously unlike、uh, our scenarios. Opened India up to the risk of、uh, retaliation by by Pakistan's own nuclear weapons, so it doesn't seem to be limited to Americans.、Um, but we still don't know、uh, about other nuclear weapon states,、uh, in particular the United Kingdom、uh, or France, where we think it might be quite interesting to see how the public、uh, would think about using nuclear weapons. Yes, here's one unusual finding.、Um, we had earlier talked about older white. Less Republican,、um, less well-educated voters, tending to be more hawkish in this area. In most, although not all, survey work, women are seen to be more dovish than men. There have been some exceptions. For example, Ben's done some excellent work on humanitarian intervention questions and some others. In our experiments, we discovered that women were not only in some experiments equally hawkish. But in some experiments, actually more hawkish, more willing to、um, use weapons to kill innocent people rather than sacrifice the U.S. soldiers.、Um, we don't know how widespread that is, and we want to do more work in this area. But this may, may be a trade-off scenario in which gender influences people in a. Way that we had not anticipated and is counterintuitive. And I guess if you do that, of course, the, the critical factor is to see how many of those women are mothers to men who might be potentially drafted or, or sent off to war, even in a non-draft situation. But I want to ask you a slightly separate question. We're living in an era where there is a lot of critique of experts, and there is a very strong anti-elitist sentiment. But the implications of your research suggest that democracy and and especially the people, the public, are the are those who we perhaps need to worry about more when it comes to exercising restraint in periods of crisis or war. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Do you think that elites in the countries that you've looked at, the United States and India, are likely to be more rational when it comes to estimating? The risks and and making a choice.、Um, survey experiments of this kind can't tell us what a president might do、um, in a crisis or in a conflict.、Um, they can tell us what kinds of pressures a president would be under, or what kind of popular、um, intentions, or what kind of popular pressure could be put on a president. And it suggests strongly that、um, presidents need to be very careful to avoid making commitments that, to drawing red lines that the public might say, "Oh, you need to follow through on this." Presidents have to be very careful about signaling in this regard. 
But the bottom line, I think it's clear and disturbing, is that any president who wants to use nuclear weapons or wants to threaten to use nuclear weapons is unlikely to be constrained by popular opinion. If anything, they're likely to be goaded by popular opinion. And so, of course, you're here within weeks of the U.S. election when the rhetoric and the, the lines that we heard were that the United States would think very differently under President-elect Trump about the use of nuclear weapons and certainly about the use of nuclear deterrence to protect America's allies. Are you concerned? I think, you know, both Scott and I have had the experience traveling around the world presenting this work to the extent that there are people in the room who might have at some point in their uh, lives been closer to the decision uh, of actually being able to decide would we use nuclear weapons or not. They worked in the uh, the Pentagon or um, uh, in the military, uh, served in the military in some way, shape, or form. Almost unanimously, um, those people are gassed at our, our findings and, and, and shocked and can't believe that the public would be thinking this way. And so I think for a long time, Scott and I took some uh, solace in that, thinking that uh, uh, although there doesn't seem to be a, a taboo or even an aversion among the public to using nuclear weapons, our elites are, um, are, are going to constrain them themselves. And uh, I think the election has cast uh, some serious doubt on that. You know, we've elected a, a, a president in the United States who has said, um, we, we've built nuclear weapons. What are they for if, uh, if we're not going to use them? And, and that uh, original taboo literature and argument had long said um, that should we ever find someone like that in the, in the Oval Office, we didn't need to worry because uh, public opinion um, would constrain them. And I think that's what our results uh, show is that we can't count on public opinion as that added check or balance on a, on a president who might uh, decide to use nuclear weapons. Well, you've certainly stirred up a lot of concern. I will never forget seeing the full-page Wall Street Journal opinion piece by the two of you that highlighted your research not very far out from Obama's visit to Hiroshima with the mushroom cloud and the results of, of your public opinion surveys. So I think it's incredibly important, and we're honored to have you speak here. But I guess I want to close with you, Scott. You've spent your entire career talking about the possibility of nuclear accidents, discussing nuclear strategy. Um, any final thoughts from you on what lies ahead and what we should, where we should cast our research and our focus under the next presidency? Um, well, during the post immediate post-war era, many people were moving from studying questions of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction to studying civil wars and, and terrorism. And that's all good. That's very important. But what this is suggesting, what contemporary politics are suggesting, is that the nuclear issue is back very much on the agenda, both because of Russian-American deterioration of relations, because of potentials of nuclear terrorism, because of North Korea and India and Pakistan. So we do need a lot more research in, in this area. And I just would note that um, People should be paying a lot of attention to what's happening in Washington right now because it's not clear which Donald Trump we're going to get. It could well be that some of the more provocative statements were a non-specialist thinking out loud, or it could be that he really believes in some of those. Um, in either case, we need to be very careful and vigilant in trying to encourage the public and our own students and other scholars 
to be very open-eyed about what's happening around us because we're in a new situation that we haven't been for, been in before. So fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. And on that note, thank you, Ben, and thank you, Scott. And we look forward to your lecture this evening, Scott. Thanks. Thank you.